know you intimately. The most powerful being in the universe, the almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God has entered into our reality. And you have generously given us a path to know you. It is in your word that we can grow in this knowledge of you. It is in your word that we find this knowledge of you that leads to eternal life. We pray that we would pursue this knowledge relentlessly. For you have called us and you have saved us from our sin and has, have given us this knowledge of you. So Lord, we ask that you would continue to renew our hearts and our minds so that we can more uh, intimately know you and be in love with you. Lord God, we confess that in spite of your good and clear communication to us, we are all too quick to turn from you. You have clearly communicated to us who you are, but our eyes are way too often blind, and our, our, our hearts are hard, and our ears are distracted. How quickly we are distracted from growing in our understanding of who you are. Lord, forgive us for too easily pursuing the ease and comforts of this life instead of pursuing you. Your ways have caused us to bristle and we, we easily find ourselves in rebellion towards you. Lord, cause our hearts to long to grow, to long to flourish under your care. And may our, our desires be turned towards you. Lord, we thank you this morning for the work that you have done in our hearts as you have called us and drawn us into a life with you and into a life with each other. This morning, we specifically thank you, Lord, for the leaders that you have given us. We thank you this morning for President Biden. We thank you for Governor Brown, and we thank you for Mayor Bennett. We thank you, Lord, that we live in a country where our leaders are appointed by the people. This morning, we would like to pray for them, as you command us to, and we pray this morning specifically for Mayor Bennett and our city leaders. Lord, the, the homeless population continues to grow here in Salem, and we pray that you would give our local leaders wisdom. Lord, may they enact policies that would benefit the entire population. Lord, that people who bear your image, whether rich or poor, would be cared for. We pray that adequate and just and financial responsibility, uh, responsible policies, Lord, would be enacted to help those who reside within the city of Salem. This morning, we also pray for ourselves. Lord, we, we pray for the people among us here at Mission who are experiencing suffering. Maybe it is the suffering that comes through just chronic pain. Maybe it's suffering from relationships that are broken or tense, financial hardships, or just suffering from fear and anxiety. You are a God who intimately knows the pain that life brings. We pray that we would be a people who have hope, hope in the midst of our suffering cause us to know that our suffering is purposeful. Draw us closer to you through each and every day, and may we look to you not as the one who causes us to suffer, but as the one who calls us closer in our suffering. Use the suffering that you have given us to give us hope, to look beyond this life, to look through the chaos of this life and to give us a hope of eternity, to, so that we may know that it is well with our soul. Instill in us a longing for the day that we are united with you as your people. It is for your glory that we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. And you can turn to Daniel chapter 11. When Kelly and I first began seriously following Jesus as a couple, we were at a church that had a wonderful children's ministry, and we had the blessing of being asked to help with our church's grade school ministry. On one summer trip, we packed over a hundred little guys and girls into a bus and headed to Southern Oregon. The plan was to stop off for a brief lunch at a local pizza parlor and then get right back on the road and continue on to our final destination. But there was one problem. One of the buses did not start when we went to restart at the pizza parlor. Now, I like to think of myself as cool under pressure, 
uh, and uh, don't freak out that much. And I may have looked that way externally, but internally, I was freaking out. But I actually remember the situation really fondly because it was in that situation that the elder running the camp kind of took me aside and showed me what it was to control chaos and rebellion in a classroom full of kids. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. And I'm so thankful for Kelton, our youth pastor, and, and Tyler, uh, one of our elders, and all of you that work with children because I know, I spent three years as one of the grade school uh, leaders at our last church, I know how hard that is. It is controlling chaos and often rebellion. We must have played in that moment every spontaneous pastoral game I could think of. Everything from uh, duck, duck, goose to thumbs up, seven up to quiet as a church mouse. That was my favorite, quiet as a church mouse. Yeah. To my type A ordered self to stand in the middle of it all felt like a nightmare of chaos and rebellion. But to my shock, what seemed like an eternity later, the bus driver came on in, let us know that the repairman had come, that the bus was ready to go, and we jumped on. In spite of the rebellion and chaos, we were able to keep control of the situation and load the kids up on the bus and head to our appointed destination. Now, the chaos of that one event pales in comparison and is very, very trite in comparison to the spiritual and earthly chaos that we have seen and will see in the book of Daniel and that we see every time we turn on the news, even today. But the, the message of the book of Daniel throughout has been very, uh, very simple, but yet very pointed, that in spite of the rebellion around us, God is in control. And because of this truth, as we've seen and we will see in the rest of Daniel, God's people can stand firm in God knowing that he is in control. And so this morning, we will see that throughout history and at all times, including the present day, God's people will stand firm in the knowledge of God amidst rebellion. We're going to dive into one of the most avoided and seemingly confusing chapters in the book of Daniel. But throughout this chapter, what we're going to see as clear as day is that in spite of rebellion, the rebellion that is waged throughout Israel's history, God is in control. And this truth can be handed down to us in a contemporary way so that we, too, are standing firm in the knowledge of God amidst rebellion. That's what I've entitled the sermon today. If you've taken notes, you can write that down, standing firm in the knowledge of God amidst rebellion. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, this text we're about to cover is long, <laughs> and it covers a lot of history, roughly about 300 years that I'm going to pack into about 15 minutes. And so we'll take some focus on our part. If you're not naturally bent towards history, I really want you to focus in here. But I think in the end, what it will do is it will refresh us and challenge us to stand firm in God's truth. Because you see, what we're about to read was written hundreds of years before it happened. It was prophetic. So are you guys ready to dive into the text with me? Yeah, you guys love the word, right? Okay, let's do it. We'll take it one piece at a time. So let's start with just the first verse there in chapter 11, verse 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. The first thing that we are going to look at here is that in spite of spiritual rebellion, God is still in control. And we find this point in verse 1 and its association with the preceding chapter. Now, one of our other pastors, Tyler, did a fantastic job last week preaching from chapter 10 to us and helping us to see the necessity of prayer in the life of God's people in the midst of exile. I want to commend that teaching to you. You can go back and listen to it online. Uh, but it was a, a great thing to get our eyes pointed towards prayer. But also contained within that chapter, a number of scholars agree that verse 1 should be connected to the end of chapter 10. And it's connected because of this discussion of what the angel is bringing to Daniel. There, the angelic messenger that has been speaking with Daniel is about to give him the vision of chapter 11. And in so doing, what he does is he pulls back the veil on earthly rebellion and warfare and shows behind it that there is a parallel rebellion occurring on the level of spiritual beings and spiritual forces. Take a look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 11, for example. It says there in Daniel 10, 11, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. 
Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words, in other words, your prayer, have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Skip on down to verse 19 with me there in chapter 10. And the angel said again, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Here we are given this picture that is very odd to our postmodern humanist and scientific brains. We are introduced to four characters. First, you have the angelic messenger that is speaking, possibly Gabriel, as well as the angelic authority behind the people of Israel, that is, the chief prince, Michael, and then the fallen angelic authorities behind the nation-states of Persia and of Greece. Now, verse 1 of chapter 11 seems to be a final word on that conflict in which the angelic messenger, again, possibly Gabriel, was called upon by God to stand with Michael, the prince of the people of Israel, as the prince of Persia was coming against him. Now, last week, Tyler did a great job showing us why this was an angelic being that was speaking to Daniel. And so we can see that these other princes, as they're referred to, are also angelic beings, but of a different kind. They are fallen angelic beings. So let's take this thread of biblical theology behind the topic of spiritual warfare that flows throughout the Bible, and let's look at it just for a moment to give you a couple of anchor points from earlier in the Bible. Spiritual warfare is all throughout the Bible. Now that can be taken to an extreme end, and we uh, fight against that in this church, right? That, that uh, uh, there's a demon behind every rock and every, every pain, right? And we fight against that, but the idea of spiritual warfare on a geopolitical level and the beastly nations in which that power is consolidated is very much a part of the Bible. We've been reading about it in Daniel. And so spiritual warfare is first mentioned all the way back in the story of the fall in Genesis 3.15. You can look at it on the screen there. In this place that's commonly called the curse of the garden, where God basically tells them the outcome of their actions... He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here the promise is given of a future offspring of humanity, a seed of humanity that will come to crush the head and power of the accuser and adversary of God, who we would know as Satan. It's the very first mention that there will be a Messiah, a Christ. But in doing so, that Christ will be killed. That's what happens when a viper bites your heel. And in this passage, at the same time, is the promise of ongoing conflict between the offspring of God's people and the offspring of the accuser. That's the beginnings of spiritual warfare, if you will. Now, if we move forward to the Tower of Babel in Genesis, where the depravity and rebellion of man reaches its epic proportions, we will see that continue. It's so bad that God splits apart humanity based upon the demonic entities that they worship as idols and makes them into different nation states that will become the beasts we've read about in Daniel. We know this from Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 through 9. There Moses is telling the people of God, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High, that's God, gave to the nations their inheritance, meaning separating them into their geographic areas. When he divided mankind, there's the reference to Babel, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. These sons of God speak of divine or spiritual beings, what we would describe as fallen angelic or demonic beings that sit behind the nation states of the world. Now, whose God sit behind? His people. 
okay? Now, from this point on in the Bible, the inherent worldview of the Mesopotamian and ancient Near East peoples would be that there would be interweaving events happening on a spiritual plane, and then that would flow into the earthly plane and vice versa. Now, for sake of time, I don't want to delve into this too much further today, but here's the deal. If you keep your eye open in the Bible, you will see this all throughout Scripture. And friends, this isn't just the worldview of the Mesopotamians. This should be the worldview of Bible-believing Christians because the Bible speaks to it. To understand this reality, as Daniel did, is part of what incites us to prayer as we've seen the last few weeks. But even in the midst of all of this spiritual rebellion, the word of God is clear that God is still in control in the midst of this spiritual rebellion. And one day, he will bring all spiritual and earthly powers into judgment. We get a glimpse of this in the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 24, verses 21 through 22. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven, that's the angelic beings that have rebelled, in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison, and after many days, they will be punished. And so in Daniel 10 through 12, the demonic spiritual authority behind Persia was warring against God and his people. And so Michael, the chief prince, and his messenger angel are fighting back against the prince of Persia. And 10.20 tells us that when the conflict with the authority behind Persia is finished, a new conflict with the authority behind Greece will begin. Now, this may seem out of control, but even in spite of spiritual rebellion, when the nations rage against one another, God is still in control. How do we know this? Well, that spiritual conflict overflows into earthly conflict. What our text will show us is that God is in such sovereign control that he can foretell it before it happens. And so here, in the longest portion of chapter 11, which we'll go through piece by piece, what we're going to see is that in spite of earthly rebellion, God is still in control. In spite of spiritual rebellion, God is still in control. And in spite of earthly rebellion, God is still in control. But before we dig into the text in detail, let's just think about it in summary. Months ago, when I introduced Daniel, I mentioned that in recent history, there has been a debate about when Daniel was written. Part of that debate comes from the fact that this section we are about to read is so detailed and so accurate regarding what occurred in history that literary critics have said it had to have been written after the events occurred. It's too accurate. The critics run into a problem, though. You see, verses 2 through 35 are so perfectly detailed and correct that it causes them to doubt its prophetic nature and the fact that it was prophesied before it occurred. But then verses 36 through 45, specifically 40 through 45, contain prophetic statements that cannot be attributed to any ruler thus far in history. So if the author of Daniel wrote later, trying to convince people that he was writing prophetically, after the events of the Maccabean revolt that we're about to read, he messed up really bad because the end of the chapter does not connect to anything. It would be the equivalent of someone cheating by knowing every answer on the test and choosing to leave one answer wrong just to fake out the teacher. It's completely ludicrous. What the critics forget is that God is one who knows the end from the beginning and is sovereign over all history. Next week, we'll look at that section and see that it is most likely pointing to a future reality to come that is patterned after the historical events that we're about to go through. All that to say this, Daniel has shown us throughout and will show us today that God knows the story of mankind and has set a day. He has determined an end. Three times we see the phrase in our section today, appointed time. And this text shows us that God is sovereign over history. In spite of spiritual and earthly rebellion, God is still in control. He knows the events before they happen, and he has determined an end to them, at which point he will bring his redemptive plan to completion. 
But let's prove this from the text by seeing how perfectly the prophecy given in Daniel in the days of the Persian Empire were fulfilled in events, events that happened a few hundred years later. What I'm going to take you through is a very high-level summary of events that occurred. But I want to encourage you, because you all have access to that thing called the Google machine, I want you guys to go and study this for yourselves because you will find incredible levels of detail that will prove even better, uh, to a better degree, what I'm saying here. And so let's jump in and take a look at how accurate this prophecy is. Let's take a look at verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. The number of Persian emperors that came after Darius was more than just three more, but the writer isn't wrong here. It is the third emperor after Darius, a man named Xerxes, or you might know him as Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. He becomes so rich and so powerful that he become, begins picking a fight with the growing kingdom of Greece. But then someone else steps on the scene. Take a look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now pause there. You may remember from chapter 8 the vision of the ram and the goat that the Greeks were led by one of the greatest military leaders of all time. Do you remember who that was? His name is? Alexander the Great. Very good. And within a few short years, Alexander conquered the known world, including the Persian kingdom. But his power was short-lived, and he died without anyone to leave his kingdom to. He was without posterity. Alexander's kingdom was then in flux for a couple of decades as infighting happened between his generals and his confidants. Finally, settling on four kingdoms. You might remember this map uh, from when we went through it in chapter 8. If you look closely on this map, only two of these kingdoms border the land of Israel, the land with which Daniel and his people would be concerned here in the book of Daniel. Those were on the south part, that, that blue or kind of purplish area, that's the Ptolemaic, or what we would know, know as Egypt, the Ptolemaic kingdom. And then on the north is the Seleucid Empire, which we would know as, as Persia, uh, nowadays as Iraq, Iran, that area, Syria. And these two bordered upon Israel there, down between, right where they meet. And these are the two kingdoms that the text will now zoom into for a detailed history, because as the two warred against each other, can you guess where most of their battles occurred? In Israel. And so it's important to understand this as the Israelite people. Take a look at verse 5. See what the angel tells Daniel here. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times." Now, these two kingdoms, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid kingdom, were in regular conflict with one another. But around 252 BC, in an attempt to bring peace between the two warring kingdoms, the ruler of the southern kingdom approached the Seleucid kingdom in the north to form an alliance. And as was usual in those days, it was to be done through a marriage of the daughter of the southern ruler named Berenice and the king of the north. And so Berenice was given to the ruler of the north named Antiochus Theos, which means Antiochus the God. You have to have a pretty high opinion of yourself to call yourself the God. Well, the problem was that she was his second wife. And many of you have heard the phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Well, the first wife, Laodice, was not pleased. So she had her ex-husband poisoned and then had his new wife and their son killed. This caused all sorts of chaos for her father and his kingdom. Take a look at verse 7. And from a branch from her, Berenice's roots, 
One shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the, later, the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Well, Berenice, with this gaping hole of authority in the kingdom of which she was a part, she called for her brother, the branch from her roots, to intervene when her ex-husband was dead so that her own son could take the throne. But before he could do so, she and her son were killed. Sounds like a really bad soap opera, doesn't it? This is the sin of mankind, though, is it not? But he continued on her brother, and was able to move into the heart of the Seleucid kingdom and even plunder some of its greatest wealth. But then, as soon as he returned to the land of the south, the northern country was quickly regained. Take a look at verse 10. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Now in 217 BC, the northern kingdom, the Seleucids, led by the next Antiochus, Antiochus the Great, so you have Antiochus the God, now Antiochus the Great, would come against the Ptolemaic or the southern kingdom at the Battle of Raphia, also known as the Battle of Gaza. That sounds familiar, doesn't it, to anyone who's watching the news? What's going on in Gaza right now? War. Shocking, there seems to be a lot of warfare that happens in that area. Do you think it could have spiritual entities behind it? Just something to think about. It went badly for Antiochus the Great. But 15 years later, the king of the Ptolemaic kingdom would die suddenly, leaving his five-year-old heir in his place. Antiochus the Great seized the opportunity and attacked and was able for the first time in a century to take full control of the land of Israel. Take a look at verse 14. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south and the violent among your own people. Recognize that. That's speaking of the people of Israel shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fall. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand." Now, this conflict over the land of Israel continued to such an extent that two very contrary political parties developed within Israel, one pro-Ptolemaic and one pro-Seleucid. The division among the people of God, even within the priesthood, was strong at this point. Two brothers, Onias and Jason, one loyal to the Seleucids and one loyal to the Ptolemies, fought for power within the people of Israel, the ones that were supposed to be faithful to which covenant? The covenant of God, the old covenant. And so in reality, you had three groups of people, those that were pro-Seleucid, those that were pro-Ptolemaic, and then the actual remnant of the people of God that stayed true to the covenant of God. But Antiochus the Great did not let up and continued to fight against the armies of the Ptolemaic kingdom. He was able to set himself up in Israel, the glorious land, and have strong authority or do as he wills. But what our text will infer in a moment is that the true people of God, that third group, did not fall into either of the other two parties, but stood firm on God's truth, not in alliance with any worldly ideology. Take a look at verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. 
Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture, capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. As a political ploy, Antiochus the Great in the north gave his daughter Cleopatra to the king of the Ptolemaic kingdom to build an alliance and be his spy. But her heart was pulled toward her husband, and she turned against her father. And at the same time, Antiochus the Great sent armies to conquer some of the Greek isles, the coastlands, as it's referred to here. But this time, Rome sent ships, because Rome was growing in power. They sent ships to push him back, and he was repelled back to his capital, dying about a decade later. He was replaced by his son, Seleucus, Seleucus Philopater, who was known for what it will say here in verse 20, his high taxes or his tributes that he would exact in order to appease the new powerful Roman Empire under whom he served. Look there in verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. No one really knows how he died. He just died sporadically at an early age. And this brings us to the ruler that is the pinnacle of evil in the mind of the Jews, the one who will be called in verse 21, the contemptible person. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Everybody say Antiochus Epiphanes. It means God manifest or God in the flesh. Can you think of a more anti-Christ name? Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, we mentioned him a bit in chapter 8. He gained authority not because he was the rightful heir, but because his brother, who was, had been assassinated. Take a look at verse 21 there. In his place, his brother's place, shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. His power was in his treacherous politics with the party of the high priest in Israel that wanted his help in turning the people of Israel away from their covenantal Abrahamic roots. And instead, he wanted to bring them into contemporary culture, by making them Hellenistic. Hellenism was the name of the culture surrounding Greek ideals, worldview, religion, and so on. This worldly alliance, based upon the ideology of Hellenism, is what aligned and connected Antiochus to the power centers of Israel. And everything started out friendly, but then his true motivation showed. And friends, what I want you to know historically is that without the help of people who proclaim to be faithful to the covenant of God, allowing these ideologies into the people of God, he would not have been successful. Take a look at verse 22. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. That's referring to the high priest. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with a small people. The party of people within that uh, high priestly class that he was aligned with was actually the minority group. It was the small group, okay? Uh, take a look there. Uh, verse 24. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder and spoil and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. The next portion of his reign over Israel was made up of treachery and betrayal and intrigue. And that smaller pro-Seleucid party I was just talking about, uh, it sided with him, and bribes were traded back and forth cementing his connection to the eventual high priest, the head of the religion of Israel, a man named Menelaus, but not before the high priest Onias was killed, the one referred to as the prince of the covenant in verse 22. And so again, I want to point out to you, without the betrayal of a portion of the Israelites, Antiochus would not have had the power he did. Take a look at verse 25. 
And he, Antiochus, shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. In 169 AD, a new young king in the Ptolemaic kingdom in the south waged war against the armies of Antiochus in the north in what is known as the First Egyptian War. Because he was so young, he relied heavily on two older advisors who history tells us betrayed him, most likely referring to those who, quote, eat, at his, or eat his food or at his table. Also, the two kings of verse 27. Antiochus returned to the north but began to set his heart specifically against the Jews, those known in verse 28 as the Holy Covenant. And this is where those against him, including the Jewish faithful to the covenant, that third group I talked about, began to call him not Antiochus Epiphanes, but Antiochus Epimanes, which means the madman. Take a look at verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now, Antiochus was not done with Egypt. So a year later, he initiated the second Egyptian war and was initially successful and even crowned the king of Egypt for a moment. But Egypt had sent away to Rome, a much more powerful group now, for help. And so Roman forces, including ships from Cyprus, known here as Katim, showed up and told him to leave. The story is they said, hey, Antiochus, we need you to retreat. And he said, ah, uh, well, let me, let me think about it. Let me go talk to my advisors. And so the leader of the Roman forces made a circle in the sand around his feet. And he said, I want an answer before you step out of that circle. He was so embarrassed, mortified, and humiliated that Antiochus retreated. And on his way back north, as a good narcissist would do, he vented his anger on all the people of Israel, those who forsake the holy covenant. Now again, verse 31, take a look at it one more time. Let me read through it one more time. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now historians and even the apocryphal books of the Maccabees, which are in the Catholic canon of the Bible, they're helpful for historical information, and they tell us of the events that took place. What happened was confusion hit Israel as false news of Antiochus' death at the hands of the Romans reached them. And so this was an opportunity for more intrigue within the politics of the high priestly class. It was an opportunity for Jason, who's, who'd been ousted, a member of the high priestly family, to try and kill the current high priest, Menelaus. But then Antiochus arrives to put down the rebellion to make sure that his political allies within the people of God, supposedly the people of God, those unfaithful to the Holy Covenant, remained in power. In the process, tens of thousands were massacred. Now, Antiochus then looted the temple treasuries in order to cover the cost of his losses in Egypt. He then sacrificed a pig on the temple altar, which is very unkosher, defiling it. He dismantled the priestly traditions of sacrifice, took away the sacrifice. He forbade circumcision, the very sign of uh, the covenant. He stopped all Jewish festivals and instituted worship of the Greek god Zeus, who is similar and connected to the Canaanite god Baal. And he even installed an artifact in the Holy of Holies, consecrating the temple to this pagan false Greek god. This is what is referred to here as the abomination that makes desolate. Now, historians agree that without the support 
of ethnic Israelites who went against their known holy covenant and writings and embraced the Hellenistic changes of Antiochus and the Seleucid Empire, the ideology of the day. Without that, Antiochus likely may not have succeeded. With this force in power, those who truly followed Yahweh and submitted in covenant faithfulness and said, hey, those of you that are loyal to the Seleucids should stop that, they were left to suffering, persecution, martyrdom, and exile as the true remnant of God's faithful people. Daniel had been looking for hope here in chapter 10, that his exile would end soon and God's people would once again prosper in the land. But what God gives him in this angelic vision is that the suffering of God's people would most likely continue in different ways until the appointed end of God's plan of redemption that would come through the work and eventual reign of a Messiah, the one who is referred to in chapter 7 as the Son of Man and who is referred to in chapter 9 as the perfect Sabbath rest and ultimate jubilee of God. All of this pointing to the death and resurrection and eventual reign of Jesus Christ. So, what on earth is all of this about? What on earth is the point of all this history, Hans? I blacked out for a minute. Bring me up to speed here. Okay. Even if you blacked out, the point of this history is to show that God is sovereign and he knows and declares the end from the beginning. The prophet Isaiah proclaims this truth in Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God sees and knows the details. But as a just and loving God, he has given room for the free will of his creation in both the spiritual beings and in human beings to play out our free will until he says in his providence, enough. And at that point, he will bring all creation into ultimate submission to himself in peace. Now, it would be tempting in the time of Antiochus and throughout history and even now, as we read the news, for those faithful to God's covenant to fall to fear or to treachery and to smooth words of worldly leaders. And I would even say smooth words of Christian leaders. For any of God's people throughout history, the question comes to us, and the question, my friends, comes to each one of you. Will I stand faithful if I should have to face similar difficulties? Will I stand faithful if I should have to face similar difficulties? This truth is given to Daniel and the people of God to help them and us in times where we are surrounded by rebellion and chaos and trouble and even when we face suffering, persecution, or death. Now, friends, I'm old enough that I have heard this kind of a sermon for a long time, and I know many people's response, oh, that will never happen in the United States. Friends, it's coming closer and closer. There are pastors being arrested in Western first world nations for speaking biblical truth. In the news, there are people being fired from their jobs for speaking biblical truth. And it is not far off where we could be arrested for speaking biblical truth. The hope that this vision gives Daniel and gives God's people is what I want to finish with this morning. Because God is in control, even amidst rebellion, his people will stand firm in the faith. Because God is in control, even amidst rebellion, his people will stand firm in faith. I know you're writing, but can I get an amen? amen? Let's read our last four verses here, and let's see what it says. 
He, Antiochus, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. You should have that highlighted or underlined if you're an underliner in your Bible. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Now, being acquainted with the old covenant as we are in this church and the obedience it requires, we might ask the question, whoa, 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 how could it get to this point where a pagan idol in worship of a false god, could be set up in the very sanctuary of the people of God, the people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How could it get here? But history tells us how that happened. In short summary, the family of the high priest at the time and all of his followers became so enamored with the need to align, of the, uh, align with the ideology of the day, Hellenism, that they were seduced into following Antiochus Epiphanes blindly. The word flattery used here throughout this chapter is the Hebrew word kalaklaka. Try saying that. It's kind of fun. Kalaklaka. Now, it means to have a surface smoothness a political charisma, but then underneath to be operating treacherously. They did not see themselves, these people who betrayed the covenant, they didn't see themselves as going against God's word. In some bizarre way, they thought they were actually protecting the people of God and his land, and they thought that he needed their adjustments to meet the current culture. This is from the book of 1 Maccabees. In those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many, in other words, their own people, saying, let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. Now, did they already have a covenant? Yep. Who did they have a covenant with already? Yahweh. Yahweh. But that's not enough. It's not enough to have a covenant with Yahweh. We've got to do something more. We've got to go to the Gentiles around us for since we separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. And this proposal pleased them. And some of the people eagerly went to the king who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentile. In other words, they went to King Antiochus outside the people of Israel and said, hey, can we do what you do? He said, yeah, sure, let's go ahead and do this. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem. And guys, this wasn't so that the Israelites could get swole. This was putting Hellenism in the direct center of Jerusalem according to Gentile custom and remove the marks of circumcision, the very sign of the covenant, and abandoned the holy covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. Friends, this happened over a slow burn in the people of God. Bit by bit, generation by generation, their faith and obedience to the true word of God was eroded away and they convinced themselves in their own mind that what they were doing was the best for God's people. But even in the midst of this betrayal and unfaithfulness to the covenant and its God, there was a remnant of faithful followers of Yahweh whom he preserved amidst trial. These are those who are labeled as the, quote, wise, and, quote, the people who know their God. Four qualities are pointed out in them. And the first three go together there. First, they're wise, they know their God, and they know him so well that they're able to proclaim and teach others, even in the midst of others blindly joining themselves to undercutting ideologies and politics that surround them. Notice that all three of these require an intimate not just a partial, but an intimate understanding of God as he declares himself to be through the fullness of his word, not as we design him to be in our own opinions and understandings. 
This is not an apathetic religious identity. This is a passionate pursuit of God and his truth. And this leads to a fourth quality. They are those who, even though small in number, a little help, fought valiantly and withstood Antiochus and the pagan influences that wanted to overtake them, even in the face of immense suffering. Because you see, when we know and understand God, when we know his sovereignty and plan, we are able to surrender our very lives into the hands of the one who made us and has numbered our days. For he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, so that we might declare his truth among a spiritual and earthly world that is in complete rebellion. History assigns these qualifications to those who pushed back Antiochus in what is known as the Maccabean Revolt and regained the temple and consecrated it back to the one true God, a fact that is still celebrated every year at Hanukkah in the Jewish community. And so again, we see that God knows the end from the beginning and even in the midst of rebellion and in the face of suffering can provide stability to his people to help them stand firm. But what does this then say to us today? Does this have any contemporary implications and applications that we can find? Absolutely. First, let me give you this. We can understand that if we do not know God, we will believe the lie of the spiritual and earthly rebels. And friends, by knowing God, I don't just mean you know about him, that you've heard about this Jesus, that you think he's a really good teacher, seems like a nice guy, and maybe even you say, you know, I'm pretty moral, so I, I guess I side with Jesus. That is not knowing God. The know here is an intimate knowledge. It is a knowledge where you have poured into his word that he has graciously given to you to understand who he is. Let me give you an example. Husbands, if you go out on a date with your wife and she's talking about who she is and what she loves and all this stuff, if you don't listen to it, how well does that date go for you? Anybody? Bad. Because she's telling you about herself and you're not listening. But if you listen to her, how intimate is that relationship? Very intimate. God has given you his word. And so if you know God, you devour and desire his word to know him better. If that's you in this room as, as a person who doesn't know him, let's say, if that's, that's you and you don't know him, the Bible says that you are blinded to the truth of God. That literally none of this will make sense to you and it can never make sense to you because you are blind to it. But the good news of the Bible is that God is so good and he desires relationship with you so much that he sent a solution in the form of his son. He sent Jesus, God in the flesh, the true Christ, so that the world could fully know him. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and by listening to his words and looking at his life, we can see God's character. But even more amazing, Jesus then died in our place, paying the price for our separation and rebellion against the Father, and he rose three days later, proving that he had ransomed us from the power of evil and death and hell. And he desires for you to accept his sacrifice on your behalf so that you can be restored in relationship to God the Father and have his spirit placed in your mind and heart so that your eyes can be open to his truth. Friends, there are only two options. The word of God is being preached to you today. The gospel is being preached to you. You have the option to put it aside for one more day and further allow the enemy to harden your heart against the truth of God's gospel. Or you have the choice to accept his sacrifice on your behalf and give your life over to him as Savior and King. If you want to do that, we would love to walk with you in that. And so talk to the people that brought you. Talk to anybody around here who looks like they kind of know where, what they're doing. They don't look completely lost. Feel free to come talk to me or to uh, any one of our pastors. We would love to walk with you in what it is to be a disciple. So that's the first thing. 
Know your God. Secondly, this chapter tells us, as we have seen throughout Daniel and over and over again, that we cannot trust our feelings of fear or anxiety because in spite of current chaotic circumstances, God is sovereign and his plan is still moving forward. Friends, it is not a sin to be worried or fearful or anxious. Those things pop in our minds and hearts as humans, but then we are required by the word of God to surrender those feelings, thoughts, and emotions in obedience to Christ and remember the truth of his word. And this should give us great hope and strength that God is sovereign and his plan is still moving forward. Third, I think that this section has amazingly parallel implications for us. Just as the slow burn occurred for the Jewish people that would never consider themselves unfaithful to God or his covenant, even though the word is plain and clear, I think so many people today who claim the identity of Christian, and it's getting less and less by all accounts, many people who claim the name of Christian are being seduced with smooth ideologies and flattery linked to the political and cultural ideologies of the day. And remember, the innate nature of, the, of flattery, as it's called in Daniel, is that you don't know you've fallen to it. Friends, no one ever wakes up in the morning and says, today I am going to choose to be deceived. But the slow fade comes to a point where people side with ideologies that are blatantly against biblical truth and against God's character. Notice that it says in verse 34 that in that day, many shall join themselves to them, in other words, to the enemies of God's people, with flattery. And some of the wise, meaning God's people, shall stumble. That was the case then, it's been the case, and it will be the case that Satan sucks away people who do not stand firm in truth. Now, brothers and sisters, with every ounce of pastoral care and love that I have for you, I need to tell you that it is time to wake up as a people to the fact that Satan is trying to sift every single one of you like wheat and seduce you with flattery so that you stand in full violation of Christ's commands and yet seem assured that you are doing and behaving in a way that honors Jesus. Some of you are being seduced by ideologies and lies that place yourselves as the lawgiver and judge to seduce you into believing that you can redefine and adjust God's word into what makes sense to you. And friends, if you do so, you are standing in the same sin as Eve in the midst of the garden. Now, we're going to have to look at more detail on this next week because we don't have enough time today. But the question I want to ask today as we finish is, how do you stay away from those lies? Well, Hans, maybe I'm in that group. Maybe I've been deceived. Maybe I've started to fall to the ideologies of the world. What do I do? Here you go. Write it down. Got your pens ready? Study God's word. Study God's word. And friends, by study, I do not mean a five-minute devotional in the morning to check off a box. I mean study God's Word. Study God's Word. And then submit to the godly biblical counsel from others who are showing by the lives they lead that they study as well. This week, I want you to purpose, to set aside time to study. You guys know how to prioritize. I know you do, because you all have jobs, you have kids, you take a shower, you go to sleep, you prioritize your Netflix binge watching, right? I know you know how to prioritize. Prioritize reading God's word. Just do simply this. Instead of looking at social media, put that aside for one week and use the time you would look at social media and study God's word. Amen? Amen. Fourth, and let me end with this. It says in verse 33, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And verse 34, that they will go through suffering on behalf of God, quote, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For anyone in here today, and it's probably everyone, 
who looks at the world of rebellion and sin and chaos building up around us and feels like it is a constant fight to stay firm in Christ. I just want to encourage you this morning. Recognize that this time is refining you, purifying you, and giving you assurance that at the appointed time that is coming at the end of days, you will be firmly in God's grace. In fact, I want to encourage you that if you feel that the current time in standing firm in God's word is super hard and frustrating, you're probably doing it right. You're probably doing it right. Kingdoms can rise and fall. Ideologies can come and go. Leaders can be built up and then torn down. But the Lord stands firmly in the heavens saying, I know those that are mine and they shall never, ever be moved. No matter what comes our way in the coming days and months and years, whether it is persecution or prison or even just the simple attempting silencing of the gospel or worse, God's people have nothing to fear because by the cross of Christ, he has already determined the end and he has one. Amen? Amen. Therefore, we can be assured as we stand firm in the knowledge of God amidst rebellion. And so, Lord, my prayer for this body this morning and always is the same request you made to the Father in your high priestly prayer of John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, I pray on behalf of every brother and sister in here, that you would grip our hearts and that you would call us to your word to read your truth and be able to stand firm against any ideology that would come in and undercut your gospel truth in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.